The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we give you thanks that you have come to be in our presence and you make everywhere holy ground. Not just this particular church sanctuary, but you were with us everywhere. Commune with us, and that's a marvelous thing. We praise you for that. Thank you for your communion with us. So we have confidence, Lord, to ask you for still more, to ask you that you would be here at work in our midst this morning as we open up a passage from your word and think about it and talk about it. Would you be here and be creating a a holy atmosphere, an atmosphere that that is shot through with you, that is not weighed down or or contaminated by the the myriad of things that challenge us out in the rest of the world. Lord, this is this is a special time. We give our focused attention as a group of people to your word here together this morning. And so I pray, create a holy atmosphere here. Show up and teach us, I ask, Father. There are a couple hundred of us here who are in all different places and we have all kinds of different needs. You know them. And so I ask you, would you send your spirit among us to, to teach us, each one of us, particular things, to to confront us where we need to be confronted, to heal where we need to be healed, to give comfort, to open our eyes and enable us to see you. Give us the ability to rest in you. Give us the courage to make difficult decisions to change. Whatever is necessary this morning, Lord, in each individual person's life, would you come and do that. Lord, give clarity to my words. Help me to be true to your text that is our authority. Ancient words passed down to us through the ages, your word to us for our good. So I pray, Lord, give clarity to my words, make them true to your word for our good and ultimately for the glory of Christ and His church. And it is in His name that I pray. Amen. So we come today to Deuteronomy chapter 18. We're going to be concluding this subunit of the book that deals with the division of labor in what is soon to be the the country of Israel. You recall that up, up to this point... In the past weeks, we've been looking at how the various responsibilities were all basically centered in this one man, Moses. He was the ultimate authority. He was the ultimate leader. He was the ultimate go-between for God and people. But he's about to die, and when they cross over the Jordan River, all that's going to be divided up amongst different people. And so we have been looking in the last couple weeks about how that's going to happen and asking then, what does that mean for us now in the New Covenant community? So we looked at how he was going to press righteousness and justice into his people. What does that mean for us? We asked that same question last week. He's going to establish authority amongst his people. What does that mean for us? 
And looking at that, we saw he establishes authority not just in the Old Testament, but also in the New. He creates shepherds to look over the flock of God. But they are carefully, they are under shepherds, beneath the great shepherd. They are shepherds set under the authority of God and his word. So that especially in in the, the practice of the king writing out in his own hand the law of God, that he might learn to follow it and, and submit his life to it. And it's that idea of the word of God that's going to carry us into our passage for today. The word of God being the, the authority amongst the people of God. Moses has been the one who has delivered the word of God to the people. He's been the one who has explained it. He's been the one who stood between people and God to administer it. And now he's passing away. How is that going to come about in the new community post-Moses? How will the word of God be ministered? How will people in God meet? It's a subject that we're going to turn to today in Deuteronomy chapter 18. So I'm going to read that chapter and then pass back through it to make sure that we understand it. And as I'm reading this, listen to it for more than just detailed information. Not, not less than information, but more than that. We come to God's Word and, and there is information here, there is truth here, there is doctrine here that we need and we must, we must get that and bring it in. But if we stop just at the information, now I know it level, we've missed it. You've, you've got to see beneath that, you've got to see God. You've got to see God in it. You've got to see a God who is here creating an ongoing way that He will be able to meet with people. An ongoing way that He'll be able to speak to them what they need. And it's a marvelous thing, which testifies to the marvelous nature of God. So there's information here to see, but there's God here to see also. See Him. Listen. Watch for Him as I read. I'm going to read all of Deuteronomy chapter 18. The Levitical priests, all the tribes of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the Lord's food offerings as their inheritance. They shall have no inheritance among their brothers. The Lord is their inheritance, as he promised them. And this shall be the priests due from the people, from those offering a sacrifice, whether an ox or a sheep. They shall give to the priest the shoulder and the two cheeks and the stomach, the first fruits of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and of the first fleece of your sheep you shall give him. For the Lord your God has chosen him out of all your tribes to stand and minister in the name of the Lord, him and his sons for all time. And if a Levite comes from any of your towns out of all Israel where he lives, and he may come when he desires, to the place that the Lord will choose, and ministers in the name of the Lord his God, like all his fellow Levites who stand to minister there before the Lord, then he may have equal portions to eat, besides what he receives from the sale of his patrimony. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. Anyone who practices divination, or tells fortunes, or interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or a charmer, or a medium, or a wizard, or a necromancer. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. 
And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations, which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see his great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord... If the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. Deuteronomy 18. The text has three main sections, two positive ones at either end and then a negative one in the middle. Begin with the positive one, verses 1 to 8, that cover the Levites. And it's not an exhaustive treatment. There's a whole bunch more about Levites in other passages, some we've seen before, some in other books of the law. But because they are part of the corporate structure of Israel, they're addressed here. God took one of the tribes, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, Levi, and set them aside. And it says he specifically set them aside and did not give them an inheritance which means he didn't allot, in the land they're going to cross over, he did not allot a tribal land for them to live in. There were 12 sons of Jacob, take out Levi, leaves 11. But don't just count Joseph, count both of Joseph's sons, you're back to 12. Those 12 all got a tribal land, Levi didn't. Set aside. And he says, verse 2, the Lord himself was Levi's, was Levi's inheritance. So that towards the end of the verse. Which means a couple of different things. Now, very practically, they shall eat the Lord's food offering as their inheritance. Practically speaking, they have to live somewhere, they have to eat something. And so what he's saying is, where they will live is not on a, a Levi tribal land. They will live in cities and towns scattered throughout all of the lands. It's going to give them special cities with pasture lands attached to them, and that's where they'll live. And how they will sustain themselves, what they're going to eat are the offerings given to the Lord. I've seen this before. All the nation is going to bring tithes and offerings and give them to the Lord, and the Lord is going to take and turn and give them to Levi, to the priests. That's how they'll eat. So the very practical way that's working out that the Lord is their inheritance. But when he repeats it again, the Lord as their inheritance. It's kind of a, a little something left open there. That the Lord himself, not just the food, the Lord himself will somehow or another be their inheritance. We'll come back to that. They're to receive all these, these various tithes and offerings. You see some of the details there. Again, not an exhaustive list in verses 3 and 4. Why? Because 
Verse 5, He chose them, He took them out and chose them to be His priests, to minister in His name before Him. They are the ones who will stand between people and God, stand in the middle there, and their, their duties are, are varied. They will be His priests, special, set aside for Him. Now, of course, God provides for everybody everywhere. He provides for all the other tribes. He provides for the Egyptians and the Hittites. But he's making this connection. I set them aside to be mine. That's why I provide for them specially. That's why I will be their inheritance. There's a little connection there. Even when they go up to Jerusalem and they leave their tribal cities, the places where they are allotted to live, they'll still receive a portion there. They're going to come up to Jerusalem and minister there. I still will provide for them, even when they leave home. And then the next section, verses 9 to 14, here's what they are not ever to do. They will be my ministers, they will come up, they will stand before me and never, ever do these things. These are the priest things of the nations. These are the abominations that the priests of these lands do. And that's a, that's a very strong word. And he uses it three times in this section. These are utterly detestable in God's eyes. Why it is becomes clear when we come to understand what they are. Verse 9, he says, When you go in, do not follow these abominable things. All these various techniques of trying to connect to the spirit world, to the supernatural sacrificing of children, intended to sort of obligate a God to speak. Sort of like, a look how serious we are, God. We, re- we really want to hear from you. So much so that we'll burn one of our children alive and speak. That strikes us as detestable, but he goes on from there. Divination. Trafficking in the power of the occult. An attempt to through magic stones or through magic sticks, through the reading of of the entrails of animals, to in some way access the supernatural out there somewhere. Speak to me. I'm open. I'm listening. Speak through this magical technique. Divination. The use of spells. The reading of omens. Sorcery. Wizardry. Necromancy, talking to the dead. All of it, an abomination in God's sight. I think it's probably easy for a lot of us who have grown up in the Western world to think, that stuff's good for, you know, fantasy movies and whatnot, but it doesn't really happen. I mean, you can't talk to the dead. Maybe somebody who will take some of your money and will rub a little glass ball and say they're talking to the dead. But it's all hooey. I don't doubt there's some fraud in that, but we need to realize, people, it is not all hooey. The Bible itself says so. Do you know the story of Saul talking to the witch of Endor and she summons up dead Samuel and Saul and dead Samuel have a conversation? That's necromancy right there. The Bible affirms it happens. In every single case where somebody says they're doing it, I'm sure not. 
But this stuff actually has substance to it because there actually are spirit beings who actually can commune with physical beings. And what these folks are doing in divination and reading of omens is opening themselves up and saying, speak, and the Lord is saying, that's not me talking. It is somebody talking, it's not me, which is why I am utterly opposed to it. Who's speaking if it's not the Lord? What spirit beings are there that are not of the Lord? Demons. Whose father is the father of lies, who always works to kill, steal, and destroy. Which is why God calls it an abomination. Not because he's cranky. I don't like people doing creative stuff. No. I don't like people trafficking in murder. Which is what it is to traffic with Satan. I don't like people opening themselves up and receiving word from demon and pa- demons and passing it out to other people as if it is the truth of God and encouraging them to follow it. All diviners are doing that. All diviners are doing that. Which you need to be very careful at because there's a famous diviner that we all know who has led many people astray with his word from God. All diviners are hearing from Satan. Careful with that. I do not say that as a cheap punch in the mouth. I do not say that to, I've got the pulpit, I have the ability to talk, and so I'm going to throw one out at you and you can't talk about I say that for your good. The Lord is not in divination, is not in omens, is not in fortune-telling. Somebody is, and he is out to kill you in that. Flee from all such things. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. These folks listen to diviners and fortune tellers, but as for you, do not do that. Instead, listen to me, says the Lord. Verse 15. The contrast in listening. Do not listen to them. They will have a word for you. Do not listen to them. Instead, listen to me. I will raise up a prophet from among your brothers. Listen to him. Verse 15 again, verse 18. This begins the third section. The positive turn then. God says, I know you need to hear. You need to hear from outside of you. You need to hear from beyond the here and the now. And I will speak. I will. Through a prophet. From among your brothers. And you must listen to him. I'll put my word in his mouth. Listen. Which creates an obvious question. Well, how are we going to know if he's a true prophet or not? Because everybody claims to speak for you, God. How, how are we going to know? Well, recognizing that, verse 22, 
creates a, a couple of criteria. How are we going to know if this is a false prophet with a false prophecy or not? And his, and his wording creates two criteria. If you read it in most English translations, it seems like it's a, a repeat of the same criteria if it comes true in the future. Actually, two things are literally what Moses says is, if it is not or if it does not come to pass. If it is not, if there's nothing to it, if there's nothing in it, there's no substance, or if it doesn't come to pass. So you could look right now and you could say, here's what the prophet has said, and for some reason or other, perhaps I, I can look at the world right now and say, that doesn't match, that's not true. Or perhaps I can look at the already revealed word and say, this is what God has said, that doesn't match, therefore it's not true. It is not. Right now I can tell that. Or... Maybe I can look ahead and in years to come or months to come say, ah, that did not come to pass like he said, therefore it is a false prophecy and a false prophet. A prophet would develop a reputation over time. Does he speak what has substance, what accords with the word of God? And then as we watch it play out, is it true? And if not, he has spoken presumptuously and is deceiving you in the name of the Lord. He prescribes a death penalty for that. Because it will destroy the people of God if it's allowed to go on. That's the text. Priests and prophets among the people of God. With a warning in the middle about what not to listen to. I'm going to make two observations from this passage and then draw them together at the end. But what we're, what we're looking at is... The person or the people, the categories that stand between God and human beings. Established here in Israel, what does that mean for us now in the New Covenant? My first observation here, I'm just going to make two observations, one about the priest, one about the prophet. So here's the first one. God has given a priest to make a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. God has sent a priest, a great high priest, so as to make a kingdom of priests. To make a holy nation. And I'm going to lean on the so as part, the last part of that, but we need to start with the who this great priest is. Obviously I'm working on the first section there, verses 1 to 8, with the priest Levi that God chose to stand and minister before him in verse 5. And the Levites, they had... A wide variety of tasks in Israel. We've seen some of them already. The last section we saw that the Levites would tutor the king. Before that, Levites sat on the high court in the land. Before that, Levites were the orchestra in, in the, some of the festivals we talked about. They were the choir in, in uh, the temple area. They led the procession of the water pouring. The Levites had many different tasks that they, that they performed under this title of ministering in the name of the Lord. But central to all of that would have been the system at the temple of cleansing and sacrifice. The center of all of the land is this temple, and the center of all the work of the Levite was the temple work. Cleansing and sacrifice to deal with sin. That's their role in the nation. Sacrificing and cleansing, performing in many different ways so that people and God can connect. Now, what, what is all that pointing towards? Perhaps I should say, who 
is all of that pointing towards. What comes of this priesthood with this great high priest over it? There's not much suspense in this for us, so I really can't build a lot of doubt here. We know where this is going. The book of Hebrews is really clear about it. There is a new and better great high priest. His name is Jesus. He is the, I could pick out any verse in the book of Hebrews, chapter 7, verse 26, for instance. He is the great high priest that we have, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, has no need like those other high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. It's a good summary of what the priest work of Jesus is. Offering up himself once for the sin of not himself. He didn't have sin to offer up for. But for the sin of the people once for all time. The priest of Jesus. Now, And we know that. He's the new and better priest. He's the new and better sacrifice. Sacrificing himself upon the cross. But we need to focus on something here that's more than just an intellectual acknowledgement that Jesus is this fulfillment of this part of the law. He's the one that this is all pointing to. We don't want to turn this into just an apologetic session. There's there's more here we need to think about. I need to say this and to say that Jesus is this great priest because maybe some of us don't know that. But most of us do. And so I want to emphasize less the who and more the why. Why did God send a great high priest? What's the point? Think about it. He sent a great high priest to make a kingdom of priests. A holy nation. Think about this. It is a marvelous reality. He sent a priest, if you're a Christian here this morning, he sent a priest so that you would be part of a people, all of whom are priests. All of whom are the people of God, a holy nation. That could not happen before this priest came. Before this priest came... The system that these priests were working in, the constant dealing with cleansing and dealing with sin again and again and again, never actually fixed anything and never actually removed the barrier that stood between people and God. These priests were engaged in something analogous to building an elaborate sandcastle on an ocean beach. No sooner are you done than it's rendered useless and you've got to start over. Every day... Can you put your head into that every day? Cleansing and sacrifice for sin. Tomorrow, what are we going to do? Cleansing and sacrifice for sin. Next year, cleansing and sacrifice for sin. And still, we can't go in. Still. Still we're held out. You realize that the structure of the temple is saying something. The structure of the people of God, the city The building and the courts and and the most holy place, right in the middle where God dwells, you can't come. 
Now, God, God will stay there. He won't flee away because the sin will be dealt with today by the sacrifices offered by the priests. So he'll stay there till tomorrow. Then there'll be more sacrifices the next day and they'll stay there again. But you can't come in. Still held out. Until the great high priest comes. And sacrifices the great sacrifice himself. That's what's going on on the cross. Tears down a barrier and makes it possible for you to come in. Into fellowship with Him. Forgiven. And so Christian, think about what this means for you. It means that from the viewpoint of God, His verdict over you is clean. Righteous. Forgiven. Or in the words of 1 Peter 2.9, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. It's a quotation from Exodus chapter 19, where God says that in the people, in the future, that all of the people of God will be a great big kingdom of priests. One day in the future, Peter says, now, Christian, that's you. Because of the work of this priest, you are forgiven. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. A kingdom, a a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Once you were not the people of God, but now you are God's people. You are his possession, his treasure. We've talked about this before, and it's all over the Bible. But we consistently forget this. This this work of God and His forgiveness, His work on the cross, it is not just something that He does that kind of renders a legal verdict over you and then doesn't change anything about you. It changes something about you in a very, I think, I think, a critical way. It makes you precious to Him. His treasure. His people. His beloved. And his priests, all of you, if you're a Christian, all of you, a kingdom of priests, not just a part that Levite set aside, all of you are a kingdom of priests, young and old, men and women, white and black, all priests, all called to minister in His name. All of us. Not me. Us. Not the elders. Us. All priests. It's going to look different in every single one of our lives. But we need to think about this in some theological categories is called this is called the priesthood of the believers. What I'm emphasizing here, Peter says this twice in, in 1 Peter chapter 2. Christians are all 
priests. We are a priesthood. Which means that there is no divide among us. I do the ministry. You don't. No, that's not the case. We minister in the name of the Lord. All of us. Different tasks, yes. But all of us minister. All of us minister in significant ways. Don't don't fall into that one to think like, well, okay, you preach and my job is to bring the chips. No. Maybe somebody brings the chips. But more than that, you are, if you're a Christian, you are a minister in the name of the Lord to other people. Which may include feeding them, but is far more than that. The ministry that Ephesians 4 talks about how God has given a few people, including pastors, to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. To do the work of the ministry. Who does the work of the ministry? The saints. You. I am given to equip you to do the work of the ministry. And if you read through Ephesians 4, it is not just bring the chips. It is speak the truth to one another in love. It is the body building itself up until all reach maturity. It is fortifying one another against cunning deception, lies. That's you to each other. That's significant. And so you need to have a mental process working in your mind that I am a priest, I am a minister among the people of God, which means that others are depending on me. I think if you, if you get this in your mind, something will change here, and that you will significantly, I, I pray, I hope, you'll see the body of Christ here not primarily as the place that you come to get from. And if you're not getting from, then it's really not that important. The body of Christ needs you to minister to it. Did that ever occur to you? The body of Christ needs you to minister to it. He's made you a priest in the people of God. You have a role to play. You are involved in building the body up towards maturity. You are involved in guarding other brothers and sisters against error and encouraging them in their, in their weaknesses and their fears and troubles. You. Me too, but you. Sometimes we think, I, I won't, I won't go to that or I won't talk to this person because I, you know, I'm, I'm okay without it. Well, what about them? It really isn't about if you're okay without it. Are they okay without you? If you're a priest, you're a giver. Do you see that? Priests are ministering in the name of the Lord, not in their own name, not for their own glory. In the name of the Lord, for others to bless them, to grow them. And he gave a high priest to save you, absolutely praise God to save you, but to make you, in the plural, a kingdom of priests, all of us.
which I think also marvelously promises us that he himself is our portion. Yes, perhaps our physical portion. But being made priests, the Lord himself is our inheritance. And so we can sing with Psalm 16. Jot that down and read first few verses of Psalm 16. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. And it should read, the Lord is, not as some translations have, the Lord has or holds. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. Then it says, you hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. The lines, the boundary lines. Well, I don't, I don't have an inheritance. Yeah, you do. The Lord is your inheritance. So you can look out and say, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places, no matter what my experience. If the fig tree does not blossom and the vines are empty and the herd is gone and the fields are barren, I still can rejoice in the God of my salvation because I have Him as my inheritance and He is beautiful. He is that for all of his priests, all of his people, his possession, those in whom he delights. Let us not think of this Christianity, even as we think about priests and ministering and giving ourselves, let us not think of it as work. Think of it as feasting. The Lord is my portion and my cup, and I eat Him and I drink Him. Sit at His table and rejoice. What a beautiful inheritance I have. He gave you a priest to give you Himself, and then to make you priests, to help give Him to others. I think this is precious and of immense value. He's made us His own and intends us to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Verse 13 from our passage says, He wants us to be blameless before the Lord our God. And to help with that, he has also given us a prophet. It's going to move me on to the second observation. And as I talk about these two things separately, realize that I'm talking about them separately, but there is a lot of overlap. Because frankly, they are the same person. End the suspense now. Who do you think the prophet is? So I'm talking about them separately, but don't close off all the priest discussion and I move on to prophet. They're, they're melding here. Move to prophet. Second observation, God has given us a prophet to make us a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Obviously, I'm keying off of verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among your brothers. To him you must listen. In giving us a prophet, what is he giving us? He's giving us his word. 
Verse 18, I will put in his mouth my word. That's why, that's what the prophet's point is. Word from God to us. We don't go searching in all this other stuff for a word from out there. We listen to what the prophet says. The prophet will speak. The prophet will deliver to us the word of God, which is of tremendous value. He births us by the word. He cleanses us by the washing of water with the word. It is His truth which we need to grow. We cannot live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. The word is is incredibly important to us. He's going to give it through a prophet. Okay, so who's the prophet? Well, it's not a diviner. It's not. He forbids us from listening to diviners. It's not somebody whose word falls false and disagrees with the already revealed truth of God or clashes with the realities of the world around us. It's an Israelite, a Jew, one from among your brothers. He's a prophet who will lead his people in a great exodus. Delivering them out of bondage and into the promises of God. Who will feed them as they wander in the wilderness just like Moses. Who intercede for them on their behalf for their sin. Peter ends the suspense in Acts chapter 3 when preaching about Jesus. He quotes our passage. Moses said that God would raise up one like him among our brothers, and we must listen to him. Acts 3. And we could go on and look at how Luke 9, the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah come and put their hand on this great prophet and talk about the exodus he's about to accomplish in Jerusalem. We talk about how that reinforces this point. We could look at John 6, how he fed them in the wilderness reinforces this point. But that would be to turn it into an apologetic session. And again, we need to emphasize more the why. Why do we need the prophet Jesus? To give us the word of God to cleanse us. Not just the red letters in the New Testament. Far more than that. Colossians 1 talks about the word of Christ. Paul does not mean just the red letters. All of the word of God comes to us through Christ. Some of it spoken by his very mouth. Some of it given to prophets. All of it now recorded for us. We need the prophet Jesus because we need the truth of God. Think about the Word of God. I want to read to you six verses from Psalm 19. Listen to this commend to you why you need the Word of God. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. 
The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. We need the prophet Jesus because he communicates the word of God to us. Now, I realize that's, that's in the psalm. That's before Jesus. He is the eternal word. He has always been the truth of God communicated to us through the prophets. And then finally, in these last days, God has spoken to us through him, the son. We must listen to him. Here's the problem, though. I don't think I have just said anything that most Christians didn't already know. We need the Word of God. What Christian is going to say, no, we don't? Really? We need the Word of God to enlighten our eyes and and stir our hearts. Who's going to say no? Nobody's going to say no. I myself readily say, absolutely, yes. Our problem, though, is in verse 19. We know there's a word we need. We know the word has been given. We don't listen to it. I don't mean audibly detect the syllables. I mean heed it, which is what God means. We don't listen to it. We have it. It's here. Most of us have multiple copies in our homes. We don't listen to it. And I'm not just talking about difficult doctrines. It's true in that area too. But I mean things much more simple than difficult, complex doctrines. Let me pick one. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And gave himself up for her. Most Christian husbands have heard that before. Most Christian husbands can find it in the Bible. Most Christian husbands affirm its truth and don't listen to it. Is that false? Am I speaking out of turn here? No, of course not. Oh, every wife knows it. What's, what's the problem there? Were priests called into his presence, given this word that we need, and what we end up doing is attempting to, to live life and, and to minister to others with all the wisdom of the world. We don't go and get it from the occult, we just turn on the TV. Read the newspaper. Talk to your neighbor and get influenced by what he or she says. And then that's how we live. 
And a husband deals with his wife not as Christ sacrificially deals with the church, but according to what's good for him. And it becomes compounded when what we do as ministers, it's really dangerous to anoint people as priests and send them out if they don't listen to the word. Because they end up spreading all kinds of problems. And a lot of us do that. A lot of us will get next to somebody and attempt to minister to them and we'll hear a situation that they have and, and what we'll say is whatever seems good in our own eyes. That's a problem. What do we do about that? Two things briefly. I find it helpful when I notice myself not listening to the Word of God to identify it as unbelief. Because that's what it is. Somewhere in there I don't believe something. An example, this last uh, Friday morning I got up at 5 o'clock to read my Bible. Why did I get up at 5 o'clock to read my Bible? Because I was going to go play basketball at 6 o'clock. So I had to get it done. And I popped out of bed. And I'm awake. I actually woke up at 4 o'clock and rolled over several times until the alarm went off. But I was awake because I couldn't wait to read the Bible. No. (laughs) I couldn't wait to go play basketball. I've been doing this now for about uh, five, four or five weeks, every morning that's happened to me. I'm, I'm awake, an hour early at least, awake, eager to go. And so I, I'm realizing I'm, I'm awake and it's really early. And when it's not one of those mornings, I'm kind of rolling over and hitting the snooze and hitting the snooze and hitting the snooze. And I open up my reading for the morning, Psalm 18. And the first words of Psalm 18, I love you, O Lord. And it struck me, really? How come you're up at five o'clock reading this? Because you couldn't wait to read this? Or because you want to play basketball? Yesterday, no basketball. You weren't up at this time. You weren't up at six. You had to pull yourself out of bed at 6.15 or 6.20, whatever it was. Really, I love you, O Lord. No kidding. I'm not listening to the word and I'm trying to figure out why is that. And then I realize it's unbelief. I don't actually believe I love you, O Lord. Next phrase, my strength. I don't actually believe that. I think I can do just fine in my own strength. Would I verbalize that? No, that's what I believe though. Which is why I don't run to him. I don't listen, I don't heed, don't give myself to because I don't believe that I actually need it in this case. Unbelief takes all kinds of different angles. What I'm trying to express here is realize that when you find yourself not listening to the Word of God, not obeying it, not subjecting yourself to it, the problem is unbelief somewhere. Hunt it down. 
What don't I actually believe? And the second thing that's helpful is to turn to him and and say, I believe to some extent, help me with my unbelief. Change me so that I actually believe that you are my strength and apart from you I can do nothing. Or husbands, don't love your wives as Christ loved the church. You keep reading in there and Paul says, it's actually not just honoring to Christ, it benefits you. The problem is, you don't believe that. You think that what benefits you is living for you. I believe a little bit, Lord. Help me with my unbelief. There's my problem. I am not concerned to honor you and honor my wife because I think it will be better for me if I do neither one of those. That's what I actually believe. Help me with my unbelief. Apply it to the particular situation in your life, but hunt down unbelief and ask God to change that to belief. Because it does us no good if we have been given a prophet and given the word, but do not listen to it. In fact, he says, I will require it of you myself. God will stand before you one day and say, why not? Why didn't you listen? I went through all this trouble to give you a prophet and give you a word to to guide and to empower and to enlighten and lift up your heart. And you didn't. Why not? We don't want to go there. We want to fight that and believe. And we need a church that's made up of priests in whom the word of Christ dwells richly, and what comes out of them to continue on in that passage is a full, deep worship, godly wisdom, and thankfulness in all trials. We need priests like that, and you only become a priest like that if the word of God, word of Christ, it says, dwells in you richly. So to tie all these things together here, God has given us a great prophet and a great priest, both, so as to make us a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Marvel at it, and then obediently trust him. Let me pray. Lord, I ask you that you would do a work in us, your people, your priests. I ask you first that you would do a work in us that would fasten us more deeply to your word. It would convince us that we need to eat it and drink it in, to live on it. Convince us at a level beyond our intellect, but convince us in the heart and shine a flashlight on our unbelief those places where our hearts are fickle and and don't fully trust you. Shine a flashlight on that, Lord, and deal with it, I pray. And then as your priests, Lord, equip us to be ministers in your name amongst your people. 
I'm thankful for that. And I pray that you would mobilize our entire church to be servants of yours. To see themselves as that. Dearly beloved, drawn near to you with access to you, but then sent out by you. Change your perspective, I pray. I thank you for Jesus, prophet and priest. Pray, make us a church that embraces his ministry among us. I pray this in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.